0: Ashley Dawson currently works in the fields of environmental humanities and postcolonial ecocriticism. He has published five books, among these three recent books relating to these fields, People's Power published in 2020, Extreme Cities and Extinction. He is a professor of postcolonial studies in the English department at the City University of New York and at the CUNY College of Staten Island. He is interested in the experience and literature of migration, including movement from colonial and post colonial nations to former imperial centers such as Britain, and in the migration in the global south from rural areas to mega cities such as Lagos and Mumbai.
1: Ashley Dawson, welcome to the One Planet podcast.
2: Thank you so much. Great to be with you, Mia.
1: So we're living in the century of the city, you hear a lot about creating smart cities, smart buildings, smart thinking, but very little about social justice. Many communities living in cities have little idea of what their future is going to look like when it comes to housing, transport, climate, education and working from home and not to mention the heat waves and storm surges which you describe as ground zero for climate change. Could you describe the rapid transition planning and cutting edge adaptation efforts that need to take place?
2: Yeah, thank you. First of all, I just said that you're right. This is the century of the city for the first time. As of about 2007, the majority of humanity is an urban species, but it's important to note that the vast majority of urbanization is happening in cities of the global south. That is, you know, cities that are predominantly populated by poor people, by standards that have typically been associated with cities. These are places where there are not a lot of jobs in the formal sector and where people often have to live in various forms of kind of informal housing, which is sometimes called slums, essentially. So if we talk about how to build resiliency in cities, we have to be very clear about which cities we're talking about, you know, and what resiliency might actually look like. So the city that I'm living in, New York City, is a city with big demographic inequalities, particularly between Manhattan, where there's a a huge amount of wealth concentrated, and the outer boroughs, where they're predominantly immigrant populations, poor people, people of color. And those outer boroughs are places that are extremely threatened by various different forms of climate change from storm surges associated with hurricanes and rising sea levels like what happened with hurricane sandy last decade to more kind of quotidian disasters like urban heat waves which are striking cities more and more frequently in a really wealthy city obviously something like urban heat wave that impacts people in global south cities even more dramatically because you know most people living in Places where the majority of people live in slums, they don't have access to air conditioners or you know cooling centers or anything uh, like what we take for granted to a certain extent in wealthy cities in the global north. So you know there there's a lot of really important innovation being done. Uh, New York City has been one of the sites for that. In particular, in my book Extreme Cities, I talk about the Rebuild by Design competition, which tried to send teams of architects, designers, anthropologists, and sociologists out to the communities that were worst hit by Hurricane Sandy, like for instance on the east coast of Staten Island the uh, borough that's in the south of the city where a big storm surge inundated a lot of communities, and to get these teams to figure out what people really needed and how a rebuilding could be done that would include really cutting-edge forms of architectural design and urban transformation, but that would also help educate people about the dangers represented in a century of climate change to cities and how the social fabric itself could be better built back up to make society more resilient as well. So it's it's those kinds of pieces and then thinking about how that kind of conjunction of infrastructural change and innovation and, and social transformation, you know, how we might even begin to contemplate that in cities like Lagos or Buenos Aires, you know, in the global south, that is really at the crux, I think, of your question.
1: Yes. and so. With your books, and I also want to get to the foundation of the Climate Action Lab, but you really put forth a bold vision. I'm thinking of people's power reclaiming the energy commons. You set out why replacing coal fired power plants with for profit solar energy farms isn't radical enough. We need an even greater shift. We can no longer think of energy as a commodity.
2: Yeah, that's right. So that book of mine tried to. Tell a positive story about energy democracy and the possibility for not just shifting off fossil fuels, which we know we need to do if we're going to stop the you know crisis of the climate emergency and the carbon emissions that generate it, right? I mean, think about the fact that fossil fuels and the burning of fossil fuels, whether it's to generate power or for transportation in automobiles and trucks and other things, you know that, that's the major contribution to carbon emissions and to climate change. So we definitely need to transition away from those fossil fuels. We're not doing it fast enough. But as we do that, as we fight for that transition, we can also change the way that energy is provided and who benefits and and how we control it, right? So energy democracy is that kind of sense that we get to really remake all of the infrastructures of everyday life. Why is there this potential for remaking infrastructures in a more democratic way? Well, if you think about how we, most people consume fossil fuels, uh, well, particularly how we get our power, you know, when you flick on your lights, you don't usually think about where the power is coming from, but it's usually generated in a power plant, either a coal-fired power plant or increasingly in the US, a a natural gas-fired power plant, methane-fired power plant. That is somewhere in your city, but pretty far away from you or else in the countryside. And you know, thousands and thousands, in some cases millions, of consumers are reliant on these centralized power plants that generate electricity. And they're also reliant on the big corporations that control these power plants and the distribution networks. In most cities in the United States, investor-owned utilities, these are kind of corporate utilities, they, they produce. Uh, power for 70% of Americans. So in most big cities in the United States, although there are exceptions like Los Angeles where there's a publicly controlled power provider, but in most cities there's some big corporate owned utility that's generating all of the people's power. And even though the rates that people pay for electricity are supposedly publicly regulated, in most cases those regulators always just go along with what the big corporate utilities ask for when they ask for higher rates and where does all that money which comes from the rates that we pay go to well it goes into the pockets of investors that's why these things are called investor owned utilities and they produce a, a, a lot of money for investors you know reliably about you know 12% profits for con edison the utility in new york city that's you know around a billion dollars of, of profit every year. And these utilities have been mandated to upgrade their infrastructure to cope with climate change. But guess what? Are they doing it? No. You know, they're putting it back into the pay for their CEOs and their investors. So we need to have an alternative to these investor-owned utilities, both so that we can take the profits that come from people paying for their electricity and actually use it to build out resilient infrastructure actually use it to speed the energy transition but also so that people actually have some kind of a say and renewable energy is particularly powerful in terms of its material characteristics for kind of helping us imagine and get to genuine energy democracy because the sun shines most places and the wind blows most places i mean some places more than others but you know you don't need some Far, very expensive power plant to to get solar power or wind power. You know you can have a a solar panel on your roof, or you know a bunch of um, communities can get together and pay for a wind turbine, as has happened a lot in countries that have had a quick energy transition, like Germany, for instance, or Costa Rica. So there's the possibility for communities and people in general actually to have power, to control power and also to save the planet in doing that and to get away from the fossil capitalist death spiral that we're in right now. We have to make this transition or it's going to kill us all and it doesn't kill everyone at the same speed. This is also a question of environmental justice and racial and gender based inequalities very much center here. I talked already about heat waves and how people in cities are at risk for heat waves. That plays out along demographic lines as a result of histories of redlining and other forms of racial discrimination in the U.S. It's communities of color that are most vulnerable to those forms of climate crisis. And it also just so happens that it's communities of color where most of the really polluting fossil capitalist infrastructure is located in cities like New York, right? And so the high rates of asthma and and pulmonary disease and other health crises that affect these communities are directly linked to the kind of racial injustices that characterize our fossil capitalist infrastructure. So when we talk about the transition and we talk about energy democracy, we're also talking about energy justice, a transition towards racial justice
0: you talked about a different vision for how energy distribution would look like. And it kind of sounded towards the end that you're thinking more decentralized power distribution rather than having this central type of system. Is that what you're envisioning for future cities?
2: Yeah, uh, thanks, Iabo, for that question. I think it can be uh, both and, right? So, you know, there is a powerful level of support in the United States and other countries for community-controlled renewable energy, Uh, for instance here in New York, the environmental justice organizations in the city have been fighting very much to be able to put up solar panels on the roofs of communities in their neighborhoods because they know uh, in the most visceral possible way about the injustices that I was just describing before, right? So they feel like they're not going to wait around for the um, city or the state or the federal government to come and do the right thing because you know, these com- communities know that you know they have to be the ones to fight for justice. And so, yeah, they're they're not they're they're busy setting up their own community based forms of renewable energy. I've written about Uprose, the environmental justice organization based in in Brooklyn, and how they have set up both a kind of community solar initiative, but they've also fought against plans to redevelop the neighborhood and kind of gentrify it because they're they're based in a part of Brooklyn that's on the waterfront in one of the so-called significant maritime industrial areas. New York City has a bunch of those areas. They tend to be predominantly working-class communities of color, and they have a lot of sort of um, industrial infrastructure in them and they're often places where developers go to try and set up big condo developments. This has been happening since the time of Mayor Bloomberg, who rezoned a third of New York City and really transformed the waterfront in places like Williamsburg and Long Island City. So in addition to sort of fighting to have community-owned solar, Uprose has been fighting to resist gentrification and to have that industrial maritime area be devoted to actual construction of wind turbines that are supposed to go up um uh, in the ocean off the coast of New York City and generate enough power for millions of homes in New York City. And their argument is you know we we need to have the jobs and the the know-how in the city to build these things and the kind of economic development that comes with it so that again, you know new energy infrastructure is very much connected to fights against historical forms of disenfranchisement and economic disempowerment and can offer a pathway towards something much better. And to realize that vision, it took struggle not just for local alternatives like the solar co-op, but it took real political struggle to push the city and the state to back the vision for what should happen in that industrial area. So the point there is that you have to fight on multiple different scales at once not just go for some kind of local vision and that these things again as i said at the outset could be both and rather rather than either or and i would say the same thing for a kind of vision of a kind of countrywide transformation you know right now in the united states we have a grid that is very fragmented it's sort of divided into three big pieces We saw last February, February 2021, the the problems that come with that when there was a a cold snap in Texas, which has its own sort of separate grid from the rest of the country. So the three parts of the grid are basically everywhere east of the Mississippi is one, portions of the west is another, and then Texas, which has its own grid. And the problem, of course, with that was when all of Texas was faced with, you know, um, suddenly uh, extreme cold temperatures and an infrastructure that had been just cut to the bone as a result of years of kind of neoliberal cost cutting, they couldn't get power from any other part of the country, right? Because they had their own freestanding grid. And so, you know, power went out. My parents live in Austin, Texas, the capital. And I wasn't sure whether they were going to die or not. There were like three days where they were living in, in their car because their, their house was frozen. Um, you know, They had no electricity there. They couldn't get up the driveway because there was ice all over the roads. There were no heating centers available, even if they could drive out. So they just had to sit in their car. Luckily, they had gas they'd prepared. But It was absolutely terrifying. And, you know, this was across the entire state. So, you know, we know that we need to change the grid. And there are lots of reasons for that. But the situation that it's in right now is is, is horrible. So we need to be thinking on that country wide scale as well. But there are ways to to do bottom up and, you know, top down um, in terms of energy transition. And we, we need to do that. And we need
0: the political action on those scales as well. I was in Houston during the freeze. It was real. Yeah, um, yeah. They had to cut the power off of these, you know, huge mansions in Texas. The amount of heat required to heat that is so, is so high that they had to decide, you know, it's like triage. We have to cut power here. And so a lot of the wealthy neighborhoods in the Houston area were actually did not have a lot of power. You now know how that experience can feel like, you know. Mm-hmm. So it was a real culture shock and just is really something, the Biden infrastructure plan, how that can sort of support the vision of these different localized cities that are working on their own individual solar plans or distributed plans. How did the Biden infrastructure plan factor into that?
2: I have not paid enough attention to his infrastructure plan to be able to comment in the detail I would love to give you in terms of local power. My sense of the plan was that it relied predominantly on pushing states to increase the mandate that they give to corporate utilities to shift more towards renewable energy. It's called renewable portfolio standards, right? So essentially the federal government or the state will mandate that you should have X percentage of renewable power in your system by such and such date. And, you know, That's good, we need that kind of shift, obviously. But the problem is that it keeps the decisions and the power and all the money in the hands of these investor-owned utilities. And they are lobbying to stop the energy transition because they have huge amounts of assets invested in the existing fossil capitalist infrastructure and their mandate is to make money not to actually be devoted to the public good. So it wasn't so much of a surprise to me that the Biden initiative got defeated. It wasn't just Joe Manchin behind that. There there was a kind of very kind of corporate-oriented uh, outlook behind the proposal and a lot of corporate lobbying it um, and just to give you one other example of why i and other people who are involved in the struggle for public power you know i'm part of the public power campaign here in new york state another reason that we say that we need um, public power and i've given already quite a few like the fact that a lot of the profits made um, go into investor pockets rather than into making the transition happen but one other kind of example came to mind in your comment Iabo, about shutting off power in an emergency, Um, and I was very interested by what you said about people's mansions getting cut off from power, because the way that things usually play out here in New York City is very different, right, you know, in fact, one of the things that really got the public power campaign going was that in the summer of 2019, when there was a lot of demand for energy, because there was a really bad heat wave, and so everyone was trying to run their air conditioners to stay cool the the grid got overwhelmed you know con edison the big investor owned utility hadn't made the improvements it had promised to make after hurricane sandy and that we'd paid for as ratepayers. so uh, the grid was overwhelmed and they had to cut power to neighborhoods in New York in order to stop the entire grid from crashing right because that's the way an electric grid works you have to have power kind of balanced out from moment to moment or the whole thing will go down and you know, they didn't shut power off to Wall Street. They didn't shut power off to the Upper East Side where all the wealthy white folks live. They shut power off to Brownsville in Brooklyn, you know, and to other working-class communities of color that are precisely the communities that are least prepared for heat waves because of that history of of racism that I described to you. So that really gave uh it generated a lot of anger it kind of laid there the racism of the current structure of the city and of our our energy grid and made it clear that we need something different and so that's really what got the struggle for public power going we we can't rely on these big corporate utilities to do the right thing on on any level
1: we need a new system as you say some call it now we are living in a capitalist scene we do need to work with the corporations or it seems like in america they you're not they're not going to transition entirely over to public power as much as i would like to see it so how can we work within those limits or could we meet decarbonization targets uh, without close collaboration of the private sector what is your ideal scenario within you know the way america works
2: yeah yeah well you know there've been analogies of course to various historic moments in the past of the united states right the green new deal this idea that was so much part of bernie sanders's campaign in which joe biden kind of appropriated to help him get elected he made a lot of promises but as i've already said we've we've seen that that really hasn't gone anywhere but the green new deal is obviously based on the analogy of a lot of the programs that were rolled out in the 1930s to deal with the great depression To help people who are in dire circumstances and to build up the country's infrastructure, right? So, you know, it's important to remember that we have kind of public power initiatives in the past. You know, the 1930s were a time when people were very aware of corruption among the corporate utilities. So, this is the time when the federal government built the Tennessee Valley. Authority built a lot of the um, big dams that provide renewable energy in the Pacific Northwest um, and also electrified all of the rural areas in the United States. Uh, And they did that through something called the Rural Electrification Administration, which, you know, again, the corporations refused to electrify rural areas because it wasn't in their economic interest you know they had markets in cities where people were geographically concentrated so they didn't have to build as much infrastructure and in rural areas people are very spread out it would have cost a lot of money to string wires out to farmers who were spread out and so they were just refusing to electrify most of the country rural portions of the country Um, so the rea the rural electrification administration was A federal program that gave uh, very cheap loans to people who would set up cooperatives in rural areas so that they could band together and take a loan from the federal government. And with that money, they could build the infrastructure they needed. And they could make collective decisions about how to do that. So, you know, that's an example of um, something that wasn't kind of controlled by the state from the top down where people were able to have a kind of really vibrant form of energy democracy under circumstances where the the market and corporations weren't working for them. And I think it's important to think about that as a model today for the sort of top-down and bottom-up process that I was describing to you earlier. The other important kind of historical analogy is, of course, World War II, right, and the way that Faced with the the threat of fascism, the United States government forced the big automobile companies in Detroit to start producing tanks and and other weapons. So, you know, the government didn't abolish General Motors, it just basically took over General Motors and said, (laughs) you have to do this. So, you know, to go to your question, Mia. Are we going to have to rely on private corporations? Uh, you know, I'm not necessarily saying that everything should be sort of outlawed, but given the severity of the crisis we face, right? And we've we've heard from scientists, you know, the the there's no doubt whatsoever. Not only that, the way society is structured right now is generating. Carbon emissions that are taking us towards planetary ecocide and extinction, but that we have to make the transition really, really fast, right? You know we we need to basically stop burning uh, we need to stop exploring for new fossil fuels, and we can only burn a, a very small portion of the ones that are already being exploited. So we're in an emergency situation, and we can't rely on corporations that have all of these stranded assets that are operating uh, based on continuing to make big profits for their investors to get us to where we need to to go which is for survival for the vast majority of people so you know i think we need democratic action to forge a pathway forward and that could involve you know, taking over Amazon and Walmart and all the other big corporations and the investor-owned utilities, or it could involve, as we're arguing in the public power campaign here in New York State, you know, we already have a, a big public power provider, the New York Power Authority, it was It set up during the New Deal, but the corporate utilities managed to get bylaws written in that it couldn't provide very much power. You know, It provides power for um, public housing in New York City and for the state university and the City University of New York, but not much beyond that. It can't generate new power, basically on the, the kind of political power of these corporate utilities. So we're, we're fighting back against that and saying we need to have uh, NIPER, the New York Power Authority, basically be what takes us forward and you know we're not going to abolish coned and national grid and all these other fossil capitalist corporations but you know we're going to let people choose which they want and you know we're going to have a public power authority that's uh, mandated to generate 100% renewable energy never to cut people off because of poverty and to charge rates that are affordable for people rather than jacking rates up to make more and more money we think that people will choose with their feet essentially
1: Oh, yes. And I like when you say that we are an emergency situation or you call it extinction. I would love to see the incredible organizational capacity of the U.S. military work on domestic issues and like a war on climate change. Ashley Dawson talks
0: about different forms of power generation. This includes renewable sources and different forms of distributed power. More importantly, he stresses the importance of having community control as resource this common a redistribution of control of our power, if you will. It made me think also about the dignity that comes with having reliable power, a dignity that isn't always afforded to the people living in the developing countries of the global South. In February, 2021, the Texas electric grid lost its capacity to provide electricity to Texans during a winter storm event. My experiences in Houston during the winter freeze reminded me of some of my experiences living in Nigeria where the electrical grid can be intermittent at best. Driving around the Houston area without working streetlights was a challenge. I remember waiting in a line of about 50 people trying to get firewood to burn in my apartment just in case I needed it. One experience common to the roughly 7 million people living within the Houston metro area was the lack of indoor plumbing. Even if one had electricity, The city did not have reliable power to maintain the water pumps needed to provide plumbing for homes and businesses. Being rich or poor didn't matter. Every one of us experienced this. The Texas Department of State Health Services estimates that 246 people died due to extreme cold exposure, hypothermia, and related traumas due to a lack of power during the winter storm. In those days and weeks, most if not all Texans appreciated the convenience technology affords us, as well as the dignity it provides. Sadly, one does not have to go to the Global South to witness people living lives without housing and basic plumbing. One has only to look at the homeless population growing within our cities. Ashley Dawson argues that the need for strong democratic action within our communities is needed to balance the political power of corporate-funded utilities, a public power authority that gives people freedoms, is affordable, and respects the dignities of all people. We all need to live productive lives with dignity.
1: You are in New York City. You imagine New York City 2050 or 2100. What do you envision?
2: That's a great question. And it's, I think, a particularly important question to tackle because New York City has been so prominent in the imagination of of disaster, you know? I mean, I think this has to do with its material characteristics, right? It's got all of these skyscrapers, and so Hollywood loves to have monsters like Godzilla, you know, smashing the skyscrapers, or even um, that movie, what was it called, uh, The Day After, you know, where there's an – a huge tidal wave generated by um, climate change, which inundates the city. We may face significant natural disasters. It's likely that there are going to be more hurricanes like Hurricane Sandy. You know, given the amount of energy we're putting into the atmosphere and particularly the ocean, the likelihood is strong that we're going to see more um, kind of spectacular natural disasters, but we're also going to see more kind of slow violence you know, uh, and and change in the city, like the heat waves that I described. So what is New York City likely to to look like in the future, um, uh, in 100 years or something like that? You know, I, I think it will depend a lot on how people are able to mobilize and whether the forms of resiliency building are things that benefit just a small elite or things that actually benefit the entire city, right? Right now, um, there are plans to build a seawall um, around just one very small section of New York. And, and that is, you know, surprise, surprise, Wall Street, right? You know, the bottom of Manhattan. Not so much the outer boroughs like Queens and, and Brooklyn. So, you know, it's gonna take a lot of political struggle to change that dynamic and to really put in place forms of resiliency building that can benefit people on an everyday level. And again, I would underline that resiliency has to be conceptualized, not just in terms of infrastructures like seawalls or even like cooling centers, but also has to be thought of in terms of shifting money away from uh, the repressive arm of the state, like policing and prisons and towards forms of social redistribution and, and healing, you know, things that can reweave the social networks that are absolutely essential to people surviving. You know, we've seen that as a, a very important set of demands coming out of the Black Lives Matter movement. I would argue that Black Lives Matter and, you know, the other movements that are connected to it, also need to be conceptualized as environmental justice movements right you need to we need to think about climate justice and environmental justice as connected to demands for abolition you know to shifting money away from prisons and police and other punitive destructive community eroding forms of the state towards aspects of the state that can help build communities up so that they can weather the storms that are bearing down on us and and unfortunately you know we're not winning that struggle right now we have a mayor Eric Adams who you know ran and won on a kind of pro policing platform and who's just announced a, a budget that involves massive cuts to city agencies most of all to the city agencies that benefit everyday people in New York City so this is going to take a lot of political struggle but it's also going to take sort of shifting the lens and and helping people think differently, right? Because the danger is that as climate change bears down on us more and more, that people are going to think we need a kind of hard response. We need more law and order. We need to clamp down on the forms of social fear and dysfunction that result, you know, and displacement. Um, uh, That's a danger in New York City, as I just said, but it's also a danger across the world the potential that we're going to see more forms of kind of eco-fascism, you know, I mean, the kind of fear of immigrants and the use of fear about immigrants has been very prominent in the United States during the Trump administration. And it's a clear component of right-wing mobilization today. But as more and more people are displaced by climate change around the world, the likelihood is that the far right is going to pick up on that more and more and just want more and more policing and violence. Um, So we need to, I think, organize for a far more humane response because, you know, we know where that kind of fascist response leads us. You know, again, the historical analogy back to the 1930s and 40s is, is very clear.
0: How do you see us as society sort of changing? Link it back to your critique, your essay, The New World Disorder. How important is it to engage the public? Because right now we have politicians, we have environmentalists, scientists as well, but we don't really have a lot of engagement in the the public. So that essay you
2: alluded to, New World Disorder, is really about the the war on terrorism and the way that since 9-11, There has been kind of license given to not just U.S. imperial interventions all around the world with, you know, the the war in Iraq and Afghanistan being the clearest examples, but also to domestic so-called anti-terrorist efforts that are extremely punitive and that you know, don't really offer solutions for the foundational inequalities and ills that plague American society and that, you know, royal the world in general. You know, think about the way in which environmental organizations, um, particularly kind of the more militant environmental organizations that were trying to protest against. Things like SUVs and pipelines in the last few decades have been labeled as terrorist organizations and the way that the kind of war on terror, not only the punitive arm of the state, but the entire kind of legislative judicial apparatus that is connected to the war on terror has been used against people who are trying to shift us towards what all the scientists have told us we need to uh, shift to, you know, shift us away from fossil fuels and towards renewable energy. And of course, the, the, one of the most powerful instances of this is the way that the protesters, indigenous water protectors at Standing Rock, were, were treated. And, and this was before the Trump administration. This was under the Obama Biden administration. You know, they were brutally beaten by police. They were shot with um, water cannons in uh, November when it was freezing weather. You know, and eventually, of course, their their protest encampment was was cleared out uh, once Trump came to power. So, you know, the way that this kind of draconian, punitive military police apparatus has been augmented as part of the war on terror is taking us down a very dangerous path, and the interaction of these kinds of ideologies and apparatuses with climate change and the kind of social instabilities that result from climate change is extremely worrying in the present and even more so in the future. So I think we we need to shift away from that as much as possible. The Climate Action Lab, this was an organization that I founded at the City University of New York as part of a grant from the Mellon Foundation that was supposed to support um, public engagement and collaborative scholarship. So we had a year-long program where we brought activists, researchers, and artists together, uh, people who are working in New York City in and around New York City on environmental issues and trying to think about how to move forward, how to have a more resilient city. You know, there were a lot of fascinating conversations that took place over the course of that year, but one of the most interesting products to come out of it, I think, was the people's plan for climate action in New York City. So the idea of that plan was that we can't rely on, you know, state agencies like the the city to come up with plans that are actually inclusive that reflect people's needs on the ground, particularly the needs of the most economically and socially marginalized people in the city. We also can't rely on NGOs, even the most well-meaning ones. So we need some kind of a process that draws people in and helps empower them. We look to the work of the environmental justice organization WE ACT, which is based in Harlem and And they developed a, a plan for um, climate action in northern Manhattan over the course of a year, during which they had frequent meetings with community members and brought in outside experts uh, and talked with community members about what they wanted, and then published this plan that included not just uh, forms of infrastructure like renewable energy, but, you know, social the kinds of social uplift. and Transformation that I've been alluding to. So, like one concrete example of this, they proposed community centers across northern Manhattan, places that could be sites of of refuge when people needed them. You know, as cooling centers in the summer, or as places where people can go if there's a natural disaster. Um, but also places that could just help connect people with one another. You know, uh, places that where people could get educated about the climate crisis, where they could suggest to folks making changes or proposing policy changes to the city and the, the federal government you know, what what local people really wanted. So creating these kinds of social hubs as a way to really empower people. So I think that is the the kind of alternative to an increasingly kind of militarized response to the climate crisis and it requires fighting classism racism and sexism and 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 fascism frankly so we we really need to take all of this on and see it as very much connected to the struggle against climate change and the struggle for better cities.
1: It's very positive. I like the message that it's positive. It's hard to maintain that hope and positivity. But one thing that people have shared with us is that really we have a lot of the technologies, which is that's really positive. It's just the people that need to change in our psychology and our ideologies. What are some things that you hold fast to that inspires you as an environmentalist?
2: Well, I think that there are examples of how people can come together and fight for their communities and for one another. The mutual aid organizations which formed in New York City and in many cities around the rest of the world in the context of the pandemic are a perfect example of that. In my book, Extreme Cities, I talk about how something similar happened during Hurricane Sandy, because you know when the crisis happened, federal agencies like like FEMA, that are supposed to be there in the context of a disaster, uh for many communities they were they were just absent, whether it was because they didn't have the resources or the planning or because they were, you know, worried about going into those communities, which is something I heard from community members, they just didn't turn up. So people were left for not just days but weeks, you know, without electricity, without food. And Occupy Sandy was the result. You know, it was this massive Grassroots-based horizontal mutual aid effort that developed. So, you know, I find hope in those kinds of examples. I find hope also in some of the other historical examples that I've I've told you about already. You know, for instance, the Rural Electrification Administration uh, during the New Deal era, and the the whole mobilization against fascism that that took place during World War II. So. I think there there are precedents. The political struggle is really hard today and I I feel like we haven't been winning but I think it's important to go back to one of your previous questions not to think of this as like either we win it or there's catastrophe and you know that's that's the end. We win or lose and there's a huge big tidal wave and it kills us all and that's the end. That's not the way that climate crisis is going to play out you know it's going to be a long slow attritional crisis that will be punctuated by forms of horrible dramatic disaster that will decimate populations but it's also going to be something that People will be impacted by for generations, and that people will continue to mobilize around. So I think it's important to keep that in mind. You know that even if yeah, the Biden administration is, hasn't done what we wanted for the Green New Deal, and it looks like the Repu- i mean the Republicans are gerrymandering and vote suppressing. So maybe they're going to take over Congress, and maybe ah, President Trump is going to win the next election. So we're not going to have any progressive climate legislation for four years, or. Whatever, you know, it can make you feel really, really depressed, but the point is we're in this, all of us, for as long as we live, and we just have to keep fighting and try to make things play out the way we want them to, because what other alternative is there? And as I said, this is going to be something that keeps playing out, Um, so we just have to stay with the trouble and try and fight to make better worlds possible.
1: Yes, we actually have more power than we realize. In closing, you think about education and what were some teachers or life lessons that were important to you? What are your reflections on the beauty and wonder of the natural world as you think about this planet we're leaving for the next generation?
2: Oh, great question. Teachers who were important to me, well, I was fortunate enough when I was beginning my work in graduate school to work with Edward Said, the, the great Palestinian intellectual. So, you know, his example of holding on to humanity, to fighting against colonialism, and to articulating hopes for a decolonized world is really important. At that same time, I was also exposed to people who are not friends of mine, uh, Rob Nixon and Anne McClintock, who, you know, like, like me, came out of apartheid South Africa and who were helping to spell out alternatives and fight for alternatives. And, you know, the victory against apartheid in the country that I was born in remains one of the big sources of hope and positivity for me. You know, I think that the fact that South Africa, while it's imperfect in all sorts of ways, the the fact that there's a functioning democracy there today is just so inspiring about human possibility. The reason I left the country and my family left the country when I was young is because uh, we didn't, we weren't able to imagine anything other than a bloodbath in that country, and it turned out very differently. So that's super inspiring. And in terms of the natural world, yeah, just the capacity of the world to renew itself. I've written a book about extinction. I know that it's very much under attack and and threatened in all sorts of ways, but nonetheless, you know, when spring comes every year, there is a feeling of hope and possibility and rebirth. You know, it makes me think about George Orwell, who said, you know, the fascists can take everything from you, they can lock you in a prison and isolate you from everybody, but when the spring comes, you'll still hear the birds singing outside the window, and, you know, you can see the trees turning green again. So yeah, I think the natural world is a source of hope and, and possibility for us. And the passion for the work came out of coming from South Africa and being absolutely dedicated to, you know, at, as someone with immense privilege, you know, as a white person who benefited from apartheid, I decided to dedicate my life to fighting against racism and inequality. And. Thinking about fighting for climate justice flows naturally out of that because it is the great crisis of our times. But definitely, the more I learn about the natural world and as a part of thinking about these issues, the more inspired I feel about possibilities.
1: Thank you, Ashley Dawson, for sharing your humanistic principles and helping us reimagine climate politics through the lens of the city your critique of our economic system and how we might find grassroots alternatives to reclaim the energy commons so that we can protect our planet and future generations. We all live on one planet we call home. Thank you for adding your voice to One Planet podcast and the creative process.
2: Thank you so much, Mia and Diabo. It's been great being with you both.
0: One Planet podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk and Iyaba with the participation of collaborating universities and students. The associate interview producer on this podcast was Yabo Digital Media Coordinator is Phoebe Browse. The theme music is written and performed by Juan Sanchez. We hope you've enjoyed this program. If you'd like to get involved in One Planet Podcast and be part of the climate change solution, just drop us a line at team at oneplanetpodcast.org. Thank you for listening.